0: There's an old wedding tradition captured in a very simple rhyme that goes like this. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, a silver sixpence in her shoe. And according to the tradition, that rhyme is a, a kind of a good luck charm, I guess, if you will. Uh, the bride, according to the tradition, is supposed to wear something old, something from her past, something maybe that she grew up with. She's also to wear on her something new to represent the newness of the relationship to the optimism for the future. Also, to wear something borrowed, perhaps from a family member, maybe a piece of jewelry from a mother or grandmother. And then something blue representing commitment and purity. And it's just an antiquated tradition now, and not many people follow it, but it has its charm, I suppose. And on the wedding day, it's special because it really does represent something old and something new, doesn't it? It's kind of a a closing moment on life as it had been, as a single person, and now the beginning of a new, wonderful relationship with someone else. It's really a new reality ahead. A, a, A new home is formed and established. As it says in Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So something new is being formed. And while Jesus uses the illustration of a wedding here in Mark 2, it's not the wedding that's mainly what I want to draw upon here, but the idea of something old, something new. There's a transition point happening when Christ appears on the scene. He is bringing not just a revamped version of the old, but he's bringing with him something entirely new. When we talk about the church, for instance, we're talking about something new in God's plan. In his unfolding uh Scheme for the ages. The church is not just Judaism 2.0. It's something brand new on the scene. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus' original hearers struggled so much with what he said. Because in their minds, they wanted a Messiah who would come and give them maybe a better version of what they had, but essentially a reworking of what they already had rather than something entirely new. The coming of Christ brought about a change that was undoubtedly a bit of a surprise. What they found, though, is the truth I want to share with you this morning, that Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. And that's a wonderful truth that means a lot to me personally. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, like I am, then you have been remade. You are something new. Jesus did not come just to renovate, but to recreate. On a personal level, it means that Jesus transforms our lives. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now we're going to talk more about that verse later on in our message. But notice that Christ is not just reforming, but transforming people. He doesn't come to make us better persons, but to make us new persons. And this was particularly important for the Jews to which Jesus spoke. They needed to understand that Jesus was not just coming to offer something, uh, a redone version of the old, but something new. He was changing things. The Mosaic law that they so knew and so understood and so cherished was only meant to be temporary. Jesus was introducing a new system, the new covenant that would dawn. In the process, Jesus is making all things new. Now, I want us to turn our attention now to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And really, this idea that Jesus makes all things new comes to the forefront. Now, in some respects, Jesus didn't seem to fit with the religious establishment of his times, you know, the customs of the Pharisees and so on. He probably seemed a little bit like a theological outlaw or a religious outlaw. Uh, here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath. You don't do that. The Sabbath is sacred. And, in fact, the Pharisees had so elevated the Sabbath that it became almost uh, almost a day for rigid law-keeping, not for doing good. And Jesus challenges that. Uh, even in these passages, as we look through Mark 2, the whole chapter kind of in, in separate little portraits portrays Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees. He's constantly rubbing shoulders with them, and they are not happy. In fact, we'll see this pattern, and we see it all through chapter 2. Jesus does something, the Pharisees protest with a question, and then Jesus answers it marvelously. And every one of these episodes happens just like that, and we'll see that is the case here in verse uh, 18 and following. The text gives us two important facts about the one who came to make all things new i want to give them to you and they're in your outline number one the presence of jesus is a cause for rejoicing the presence of jesus is a cause for rejoicing When we think of christ coming to make all things new one of the things he does is he brings with him a newness that brings joy the the kind of tired old system of legalism which had been in place for a long time in the life of Israel. The Pharisees fastidiously kept up that facade of being more righteous than thou, and they were the the keepers of this kind of rigid legalism. It was all about keeping the law. Loving God kind of got back seat, in a sense, to keeping the rules. Well, when Jesus comes it brings joy, and joy replaces the sort of solemn despair of the old system. You know, we're, we're soon approaching Christmas here in a few months, and it's, not, it's for a reason that the sky, when Jesus was born, was filled with angels saying, this is good news of great joy. Something joyful had dawned when Jesus was born. You see, the world needs something new, not just an updated version of the old. And therefore, the coming of the one who makes all things new is a reason to rejoice. So let's look at the passage and look at the controversy that sets the stage for Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, it's very possible that this protest here this question that's posed to jesus may have come at the same point as the story before remember jesus is feasting with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners and that was the previous protest what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners and maybe at the same time somebody else came up and said here you are feasting isn't it thursday aren't you supposed to be fasting that's what the others do Nevertheless, whether it happened at the same time or a different time, the question is posed, why don 't you fast now you 'll notice at the beginning of eighteen it says talks about the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist and the Pharisees. And it might seem like a rather unusual blend because wasn 't John pretty harsh with the Pharisees? I mean he called them a brood of vipers. Um, so what are the disciples of John and the Pharisees doing together? well i don 't think that this verse indicates that there was some kind of reconciliation between the two groups. I think the point is to show the universality of fasting. If you were Jewish, fasting was just part of culture and part of life. Everybody did it. Whether you were on the conservative end of the John Baptist disciples or whether you were on this over end over here where it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees or pick your group. Even the Essenes who were sort of a sectarian group of Jews. Even they fasted. Judaism at this time in history had basically three practices which they thought of as being the kind of pillars, the uh, the uh, central practices of their faith. They were almsgiving, so giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And by the way, if you go look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus preached, he goes after all of those and how they were practiced hypocritically. Nevertheless, fasting was one of their key practices. If you were a Jew, it didn't matter what flavor you would practice fasting and here jesus and his disciples aren't now again if we look at the bible there was only one feast in the history of israel that was connected with a fast that is the day of atonement later on as tradition began to build there were four more fast days added to the calendar and then, eventually, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees fasted at least twice a week. And that was partially to, as a religious obligation or a religious expression. But, as we know from the Pharisees, it was also a way of attracting attention. They wanted the praise of men to come to them. Again, we also see in the Bible that fasting was practiced intermittently. We know certain occasions, for instance, Nehemiah fasts when he hears that Jerusalem is torn down. Uh, The the Ninevites fasted when they heard the preaching of Jonah. Esther called for a fast when she went before King Ahasuerus. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, and later on in Acts we see the church fasting as they prayed about Paul and Barnabas going out into the mission field. So the practice of fasting is, It's kind of all over the place. Here, though, the question, why does Jesus and his disciples not fast? Now, again, the practice of fasting is going without food or water for a period of time for some spiritual reason. Or maybe to say it slightly differently, fasting is denying yourself something in order to draw near to God. So, again, that's a little bit broader definition of fasting. It might include other things besides just food. But it's often done in times of mourning or grieving over sin. It could also be done in preparation for something, like we saw in Esther or Acts. Whatever reason a person fasts, it was done for, for and unto God. That's why it's wrong to fast for the approval of others. Uh, likewise, fasting is not just a Christian form of dieting or weight loss. It's, it's something for a spiritual purpose, for a spiritual reason. And so they ask. Why are you not fasting? And, and another question that comes up pretty frequently is, as Christians today, are we supposed to fast? Well, we're never commanded to fast in the New Testament. We're never told you must do this. But there are places, and we'll see it even here in the passage, which imply that Jesus' followers will fast. Here's what I think. I think fasting is something that we are permitted. It's something that we... Uh, can practice as christians but we don't have an obligation to do it so in other words if you're not fasting or haven't fasted maybe for a long time that does not mean you are out of the will of god or you're somehow in sin it's not something we must do but it is something we can do and jesus assumes that his disciples will practice that so they come to jesus and ask why are your disciples not fasting now again the question here is who's the they It says in verse 18, then they came to him. Well, it was probably just the Jewish kind of population. It wasn't people of a particular group, but they do point and say, the Pharisees over here are fasting. Disciples of John over here are fasting, but Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. What's up with that? So we see this question of fasting that comes up first And Jesus responds to the question of fasting with two statements. The second has two parts. So the first statement alludes to the bridegroom, the image of a wedding. And then he uses two illustrations to explain the point he's making. So let's look at the first statement, the example of the bridegroom. The example of the bridegroom. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Remember what we read in verse 19. It's an answer to a question. So why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus answers in the form of a question. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now Jesus here draws upon a very familiar practice that Uh, Everyone would have understood the first century Jewish wedding. Now, The obvious answer to the question here is no. Do the friends fast while the bridegroom is with them? No. Because, again, a wedding is not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration. Um, The friends of the bridegroom mentioned here are those people who were uh, attendants, who would accompany the bridegroom as he would make procession, to the house of his to-be bride, and, and there they would retrieve her, and there would be a huge multi-day feast in which the whole community would be invited, and people would eat and drink, and it would just be a wonderful time. Not only was it, would it be an odd time to suddenly start fasting, but I actually read that some of the rabbinic writings and things said that you were prohibited from fasting. Like, even if you were in the middle of a, a five-day fast and somebody that was a friend got married, you were supposed to break the fast because... A marriage is no time for fasting. It just wasn't. It was a time to celebrate. Again, we're coming up on the holidays here. And I would say in our culture, Christmas is no time for fasting, is it? In fact, uh, in fact if you're on a diet and you're getting near the holidays, I mean, it doesn't matter how faithful you are to the diet. Christmas Day, you've just got to get a little sliver of pumpkin pie or something. I mean, you just can't not do that, right? Um, and if you're somebody who gets through... The holidays by keeping your diet god bless you but it's a time for feasting it's a time for joy right that's what the, the holiday season's about it's about joy and part of that's expressed in in feasting and so it was with a marriage he says this is not a time for my disciples to be fasting remember what i just said fasting is denying yourself in order to draw near to god well if the bridegroom is with you how can you be any nearer to God than him being there, right? Uh, for instance, when we get to heaven, I can guarantee you there will be no fasting in heaven. Not just because fasting can be unpleasant, but because God is with us and he will dwell with us. There's no point of us drawing near. He's right there. So it was with Jesus right there with them. In fact, he says at the end of verse 19, they cannot fast. This is, it's not something that they're even permitted to do because they're in the presence of the bridegroom. Presence of Jesus changes everything. He makes old things new. And his coming is a cause for joy. His presence, a reason for rejoicing. And the disciples could not fast as long as Jesus were with them. But I think in the very next verse, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. So yeah, there's the example of the bridegroom, but also he gets to the heart of the matter in verse twenty. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. I love how Jesus really does, I think, get to the heart of the matter in this. Because it's really not about the practice of fasting. Uh, He says here, verse 20, days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. Now that verb there, taken away, implies sort of a violent snatching and this is probably mark's first albeit very subtle reference to the cross that that the bridegroom's here now but sometime in the future he's going to be taken away violently and the crucifixion would happen of course jesus would be raised from the dead and ascend but the disciples would be out of the presence of jesus he says in those days they will fast again it's implied there that disciples will fast Not commanded, but implied. You notice the the question these people were asking. They said, well, why are your disciples not fasting? They're not really asking about fasting, are they? They're asking about tradition. Everybody's doing this. This is just part of the fabric of what it means to be Jewish, and you're not doing it. What's the matter here? You see, Jesus, he basically says, you know, my disciples will fast. The issue here is not about who's fasting, who's not fasting. But rather, they're trying to force Jesus into the mold of what they expected, what they thought Judaism and its core practices were all about. Not realizing that Jesus was bringing something that was going to be entirely new. And we'll see more about that in a few moments. Jesus did not come to destroy tradition just because it was tradition. But neither was he beholden to it. The joyless legalism of the Pharisees was the very opposite of what Jesus and his presence brought, joy. His presence is a cause of rejoicing. And Jesus illustrates that with the image of a wedding. So if you've been changed, if you have been remade by the Lord, if, if as it says in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you have been remade. Therefore, there's been a reason to rejoice. You've been freed from the oppression of, of a code and legalism and the, the rules and regulations that stood against us. The presence of Jesus is a cause for rejoicing. But I want to point out, and probably more importantly, our second idea here. Not only is the presence of Jesus a cause for rejoicing, the work of Jesus is a catalyst for change. The work of Jesus is a catalyst for change. And by the work there, I'm talking mainly about his work in coming, fulfilling the plan of God, and dying upon the cross. He offered himself as a ransom for sinners. What we're going to see as we study, in Mark's gospel, the cross is the central event, it's what the whole thing is driving towards. A change is taking place, and Jesus and his work is the catalyst for that change. What he does upon the cross is going to have effects that will ripple down through time. And everything that uh, the Jewish people thought, you know, and especially the Pharisees thought was uh, kind of the way unto salvation is going to be turned upside down at the cross. It's not by law-keeping. It's by grace through faith we see the church, we're looking at something entirely different. Jesus is the catalyst for all this change. And I want to look at his two illustrations he gives, which are found in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Let's read them together. Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and a tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled. And the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let me just say, I think here is a really dramatic and very um, uh, metaphorical way of Jesus expressing that he has come to make all things new. And Let me just say, we've talked about... the the Jewish faith and kind of the changes in the system that Jesus is bringing. But when it comes to individuals like you you and me, Jesus did not come to put a bandage on our lost condition. He came to completely heal and restore us. Let's look at the two illustrations, though. The first he uses is of cloth. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Now, uh, you probably have at times patched old clothes i remember when we were kids my mom would constantly be sewing like patches on jeans because you know boys just have a way of destroying the knees on pants you know and that was true in our household so we we had ones that were sort of like play clothes they're all patched up and you know you do it to make them last a little longer so we don't have to buy another pair of jeans every couple of weeks for these kids but what if you sewed a patch on a piece of clothing but the patch was new. You, you know, clothes, depending on what fabrics and what material you're making them out of. On first washing, clothes can shrink. So what if you have an old pair of clothes that's been washed lots and lots of times and you take a piece that has not yet shrunk? What's gonna happen? That's that's the illustration. I remember I had a classmate one time. We were out we were visiting a kind of a tourist site, and he bought one of these novelty t-shirts, you know, that kind of memorializes where we were at. And he brought it back, and it was clearly unshrunk, okay? Because he put it in the wash, ran it through the dryer, all of that, and it came out, and I'm not kidding, it was like child size by the time it came out. It was pretty comical. But that's what happens, right? Clothes will shrink. And if it happens to the patch, it tears away. And it makes the, the damage even worse. So the idea is you don't stick something new on something old. And as Jesus applies it to himself, he's making the point you can't just superimpose Jesus into your old ways of doing things, into your old system. It's not going to work. They're not compatible. Then he uses another illustration, that of wineskins. This one's even more interesting in a way. In ancient times, wine would be stored in animal skins. They would make these animal skin bags. It was kind of like a tanned leather, and they would sew them up around the edge. And then there would be a a top of the bottle where they would have some kind of a plug or a cork. And you would keep wine in there. Now, a new wine skin would have some play in it. It would kind of be able to expand and uh, was, was a little bit pliable, whereas an old wine skin kind of dried out, and it would become pretty brittle. So what happens? You put new wine into a new wineskin. Well, as the wine, and again, it's new wine here, as it ferments, gases are released from the wine and it begins to expand. Thankfully, the new wineskin can take the expansion and it will expand with the expanding gases. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, the expansion happens, but the the wineskin can't handle it. It's too old and brittle. It it doesn't have any give left in it. And so it bursts. And Jesus says in verse 22, the wineskins are ruined and the wine is is gone. So it's a double loss. Everything is is lost there. And again, the point is the same. You can't put what is new into what is old. Jesus does not fit into the old patterns. You can't just stick him in, plug and play. You've got to be able to, to put it, There's there's a whole new system that's coming with Jesus. So both parables get at that exact same point. One commentator states it like this. He, talking about Jesus, is not an attachment, an addition, or an appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures, even Judaism, Torah, and the synagogue. Of Jesus' two reasons... Why his disciples don't fast. The first is practical. Jesus is here. The second, though, is theological. It's because Christ brought a change to the old system. So don't expect him to do everything like you would expect a faithful Jew to. If they believed that Jesus were simply offering a few new footnotes on what they had already well established in terms of religious tradition, they were mistaken. Jesus makes all things new. And I want to point out that Christ definitively changes the system. And by system, I'm talking about the religious system of the day. Now, that was obviously something Jesus' audience would have had difficulty understanding. This was the system they were used to. They had lived under the Mosaic law. And now Jesus is proposing that it's replaced by something new. Now, you might press me here and say, well, read I've heard you say before that Jesus does not replace Israel. So which is it? Does he come to replace or does he come not to replace? Well, I'll tell you this. I have not become a replacement theologian. Jesus does not fulfill Israel. He does not fulfill the promises given to Israel. But he does, in one sense, replace the Mosaic law. That element is replaced, and that's the whole point of Hebrews. If you go study Hebrews, it's not Israel itself that's set aside. It's not the promises to Abraham that's set aside. It is the Mosaic law that's set aside, and that has been fulfilled in Christ. It has been done away with. That's why Paul repeatedly in the New Testament says, we are not under law, we are under grace. That, that era of the law has passed. That was the change that Jesus brought. You know, During the Old Testament law, Um, we were told, or people were told, to observe the Sabbath, to refrain from eating certain uh, types of seafood. They were told how to offer sacrifices. All of that and much more is part of the Mosaic law, and it's displaced by the coming of Christ. The sacrifices, the priesthood, all of it has been set aside, replaced by the new covenant. Jesus did not abolish the law. It's not like he came and said, well, this law... Let's just scrap it. But he came to fulfill the law. That's what he says in Matthew 5.17. I've not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. He, he didn't discard the law like it was a piece of trash. He fulfilled its purpose. And in doing so, it passed away. Somebody used this illustration. I thought it was very helpful. If you take a seed for a tree or a plant, you can destroy it. You can destroy it with fire toss it in the flames and watch it burn. You can take a hammer and beat the seed until it breaks into tiny little pieces. Or you can take the seed and plant it in the ground. And as it germinates and begins to sprout, the seed itself is destroyed and makes way for the plant, the tree that comes up. That is kind of what's going on here. Jesus didn't just throw the, the law into the fire, but rather... It reaches its fruition. It reaches the point of its fulfillment and becomes something far greater. So the law, in one sense, is fulfilled in Jesus. Again, not all of the promises of the Old Testament. One author uses that illustration of the seed, but he also uses a number more. He says, uh, the full-blown rose does not destroy but fulfills the rosebud. The tulip fulfills the bulb. The, The butterfly fulfills the caterpillar. And so on. So it is that Jesus fulfills the law. And it is therefore done away with. A new age has dawned. And by the way, we might also recognize this. Now this doesn't necessarily go for the law itself. But it does go for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had built not just the law, but a system around it. It was basically a man-made system. I think we all know this. But if you look around at man-made religion in the world, they're all essentially the same. You must do enough, you must do something to earn your right to be accepted by God. You've got to do whatever religious rituals or good works, uh, whatever uh, you know, kind deeds are required that earns you points with God. And eventually you will earn a place in paradise, whatever that might be. And if, if we put all of the world religions, by the way, including modern Judaism, for sure fits into that type of mold. If you put all of them on this side of the scale, Jesus offers something entirely different. His coming and his, the system that he comes to change is, is not one based upon human effort and merit. It's something based upon his finished work, what he did on the cross. He paid for sins and offers forgiveness. He satisfied God's wrath upon the cross. It's not about what we do. It's about what's been done for us. So I suppose the question might be, have you ever received that free gift, that which is offered through the cross of Jesus? Are you still under the old system where it's just got to do enough, got to check off my church attendance, got to practice the golden rule, and eventually that'll make me accepted? Well, you are only accepted through Christ by putting your faith in him. Have you ever done that? But I want to I really bring, make this practical, though, because not only does Christ definitively change the system, Christ definitively changes you. Mark 2, 21 to 22, points to the change in the religious life of Israel, but it also marks a definitive change for everyone who would come to Christ in faith. You know, a lot of people have the wrong idea about Christianity. That the Christian message makes us better people. That Christianity teaches morals. And morals make people better citizens, better neighbors, better friends. Well, it's true that we ought to be better citizens, neighbors, and friends. But the Christian message is not, let's be better to each other. Let's be better people. Christ did not come to make us better people. He made us to be new people. He came that we might be born again. Again, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The old is gone. The new has come. We are a new creation in Christ. Jesus makes all things new, including you and me. Old things have passed away. All those things that defined our life before. Pastor John MacArthur describes them this way refers to old values, ideas, plans. Loves, desires, and beliefs vanish, replaced by new things that accompany salvation. What we need is a total reconstruction, not a minor renovation. Imagine a scenario where you bought a home. You buy a house, and you, everything looks wonderful. I mean, it's, everything's up to date. It looks very modern. Um, e- even the colors that people have chosen for the inside of the house, it all looks Beautiful. And you're thinking, this is awesome. It's a great price point. You, you kind of rush an inspection, and you buy the house. And then what you find out later on is that behind the beautiful paint, you got dry rot in the walls. Oh, and by the way, the electrical is not really up to code. And you have a plumbing leak somewhere. And on and on it goes. You see, that's, that's in a sense... What our efforts and what human religion can offer is a fresh coat of paint. Maybe a few new appliances to kind of make everything look good. But nothing's changed underneath. Nothing is really better. And what's the end result of that house? Well, eventually it's going to be demolished, right? Because to try and replace everything that's wrong, it's basically a new house, you see, what we need is a new house. We don't need a fresh coat of paint. That's what everyone is offering. You know, oh, make your life look a little better. You know, have better relationships, have better this, have better that. And what we need is not something better. We need something new. And that's what Jesus came to give. There are millions of people in the world who look better because of their religion. They try to do good to others. They, they follow that golden rule. That They give to charities. They've got all these coats of paint on their life, but they're still sinners at their heart. Jesus came not to renovate, not just to improve our lives, but to bring a radical change. We need to be new, and only Christ can do that. Only Jesus can take us and change us at that deepest point where our heart is corrupted sinful and change us into dearly beloved children. So I guess if, if you're a believer this morning, if, if you can say, you know what, I have set aside my own efforts. I've set aside false religion and, and man's ways, and I, I am trusting in Christ. then I suppose the question might be, does your life look like a new creation? Or to some degree, do we kind of hang on to the old ways because they're familiar to us? You know, do we really look like that. Are we walking in the change? Here's how Paul says it. He says, if we've been changed from children of darkness into children of light, let us walk as children of light, Ephesians 5. This is different than trying to be a better person. Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, and since we've been changed, we ought to live consistent with that change he has brought. Uh, I want to turn our attention just for a moment to Ephesians chapter 5. Or excuse me, Ephesians 4. We'll go one chapter earlier. Let me read to us verse 20 to 24. The Bible says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul talks about it in terms of putting off, putting on. He says if, we've been, if we have learned from Christ, if he's the one who has taught us, if we are walking in his path, then we ought to put off those old practices, the old ways of thinking, the old patterns of lifestyle. And then he says in the middle, be renewed in your mind. There's something to change about the way we think. And it should be a gospel change in our thinking. And then we put on the new man, which is according to God and true righteousness and holiness. So what you and I need is not to be a better person, but to be a new person. I have a tendency, I think, like some of you, I wouldn't quite call myself a hoarder, but I'm constantly finding things that I think, oh, no, don't throw that away. I could probably fix that. I could probably tape that up and make it work again. And so stuff gets tossed into the garage or into the shed because it's like, oh, I'll get to that eventually. And, and what happens? Eventually it just piles up and then it all gets thrown away at some point. And frankly, it probably should have been thrown away at the beginning. Because, you know, the, some of this stuff is so broken, it's like by the time you get finished fixing it, you may as well just got another one. And so it is. The people are trying to fix up their life. And what we really need is a a total change. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once told a story of a simple countryman who was coming in to a gunsmith. He had an old flintlock musket that he wanted repaired. So he brought it in, gave it to the gunsmith, and after he examined it, he said, your gun is very worn out, ruinous, good-for-nothing condition. What sort of repair do you want for it? Well, said the countryman, I don't see as we can do anything with it short of a new stock lock and barrel. That ought to get it set. Why, said the smith, you had better have a new gun altogether. After all, lock, stock, and barrel sort of represents the whole thing, right? Ah, he replied, I never thought of it. It strikes me that's what I want, a new lock, stock, and barrel. Why, that's, that's a new gun. That's the thing that I'll have. And so it is. You know, there's no repairing what is hopelessly broken. And so is our sinful condition. But Jesus came to make all things new. As we've looked at Mark chapter 2, verses 1, uh, 18 through 22, you know, it's one of those passages that maybe if you're reading your Bible, it sounds a little cryptic. You know, Jesus is talking about don't sew a piece of cloth onto another cloth. And, you know, what about wineskins and bursting? And it's all kind of the, like, what's going on? Maybe you've read these verses before and wondered, what's Jesus even talking about here? but I think it points to the fact that Jesus makes all things new. He's not just a modification, not just an addition to our lives. The old passes away, the new has come. So I want to close our message this morning with a question. And here here it is. Is your life different today than it was six months ago? Have you changed in some way? How about a year? How How have you changed you may say, well, what, what does that question have to do with what we've just talked about? But if we've, if we've met Christ and he is the one who brings change, he is the one who makes all things new, do our lives look any more renewed today than they did, say, a year ago? And again, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be something huge. But I do think if, if we're to be growing, like Paul says, putting off, putting on, that day by day, There's going to be things in our life that we we notice, and and we may not notice them over the course of a day or a week, but maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe two years, you can look back and say, you know what, I've really changed. I I used to be this way, and, and I've seen the Lord work in my life, and those things change. Let me say, if, if you look and you say, well, I can't think of any way my life has changed in six months or a year. Or maybe if it has changed, it's been for the worse. Let me just say, the pattern for the Christian life should be growing and changing as we go. If that's not the pattern with you, then by God's grace, can we pray? Can we pray? And, and make it our aim to grow in Christ's likeness, get back in the word, get back into communing with God and say, Lord, I want to be on a path where my life looks different a year from now than it does today, that I'll be closer to you, more devoted, more uh, loving and kind, more gracious a year from now than I am right now. You see, Christ wants to renew you. He has at the cross, if you've trusted him, But there's still work to be done in all of us. May we reflect and may we look like a new creation.